Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Good morning, evening, or good night, you lovelies. This being the final episode for the year, I wanted to bring you something special, something strange, and also a classic. So this week, I've enlisted the help of artificial intelligence to write stories about a duck in the stylings of H.P. Lovecraft using this prompt. A duck falls in love with a mossy rock. This rock has runic symbols on it. The story is written in the style of H.P. Lovecraft. I also then proceeded to ask the AI to write me a tale about a detective using this prompt. A detective continues to find twisted and mangled bodies throughout downtown New York, written in H.P. Lovecraft style. Mates, I think you know how much I love anything to do with AI art, particularly mid-journey, so expect to see some crazy duck-related monster artwork in Patreon today. Lastly, I also have a story written by Tawawe titled El Hotel Raconteurs, or otherwise known as The Storyteller's Hotel. Warning, this is explicit in nature, covers topics like suicide, mental illness, child abuse, and overall is not for little ears. Now without keeping you waiting, enjoy. Once upon a dark and stormy night, the duck paddled aimlessly through the murky waters of the swamp, searching for something to hold on to in the unforgiving wilderness. The duck had lost its legs in a tragic hunting accident and was now doomed to drift through the swamp, unable to find solid ground to rest upon. But then, one day, the duck spotted a mossy rock jutting out of the water, and it was love at first sight. The duck paddled over to the rock and nestled into the soft green moss, feeling a sense of comfort and security that it had never known before. As the duck gazed upon the rock, it felt a strange and unworldly connection to the ancient moss-covered stone. The rock seemed to pulsate with a dark and eldritch energy, as if it were alive and sentient. The duck soon found itself entranced by the rock, and spent all of its days and nights nestled in the moss, gazing upon the rock with adoration. It whispered secrets to the rock, and the rock whispered secrets back to the duck. But the duck's love for the rock was not meant to last, as the storms raged on and the waters of the swamp grew colder, the duck began to feel the weight of its cursed existence. It could not escape the swamp, and the rock could not provide the warmth and shelter it needed to survive. And so, the duck grew weaker and weaker, until it finally succumbed to the cold and the dark, drifting away from the rock and into the abyss, but even in death, the duck's love for the rock remained, and its ghostly spirit lingered in the swamp, forever bound to the mossy rock it had fallen in love with. AI Revision 2 Once upon a time, in a land far beyond the reaches of mortal men, there lived a duck who was unlike any other. This duck though it had the same feathers and beak as its kin, was born without legs. Despite its disability, the duck lived a happy and contented life, floating on the still waters of the nearby pond and basking in the warm sun. But one day, the duck's peaceful existence was shattered by a sudden and intense feeling of longing. It looked around, trying to understand the source of its emotion, but all it saw with the same old reeds and lily pads that had always surrounded it. Then, the duck's gaze fell upon a mossy rock that jutted out from the water's edge. It was unlike any other rock the duck had seen before. Its surface was rough and uneven, and it was covered in a thick layer of green moss that seemed to shimmer in the sunlight. The duck was immediately smitten, it paddled over to the rock and began to preen itself, 
trying to make itself as attractive as possible to the object of its affection. But the rock remained cold and unyielding, and the duck's advances were met with silence. Undeterred, the duck continued to visit the rock every day, sharing it with gifts of feathers and bits of food, but still, the rock remained unmoved. As the weeks turned into months, the duck's obsession with the rock grew stronger and stronger. It began to have vivid dreams of the two of them together, floating on the pond and basking in the light. But in its waking hours, the duck was forced to confront the cold reality that the rock would never love it back. And so, the duck was consumed by madness that only the lovestruck can understand. It spent its days swimming in circles around the rock, calling out to it in a plaintive voice. But the rock remained silent, and the duck was left to contemplate the cruel fate that had befallen it. To love without hope, without end, without respite. And in the end, it was this unyielding love that drove the duck to its doom. Revision number three. The duck had always been a peculiar creature, with its smooth, featherless body and its lack of legs to support itself. But despite its strange appearance, it had always been content in its small pond, surrounded by the lush greenery of the surrounding forest. But then, one day, the duck stumbled upon a mossy rock that caught its eye. At first, the duck was unsure of what to make of this strange new object, but as it drew closer, it began to feel a strange, pulsing warmth deep within its chest. The duck had never felt anything like this before, and as it gazed upon the rock, it realized that it had fallen hopelessly in love. Despite the fact that the rock was immovable and unable to return the duck's affection, the duck remained steadfast in its love, spending every waking moment in the rock's presence. But as time passed, the duck began to notice a strange change within itself. Its once smooth and featherless body began to sprout strange, twisted growths and its mind became consumed with dark, twisted thoughts. The duck's love for the rock had begun to twist and corrupt it, and soon it became a monstrous creature, consumed by its own madness and desire. And still, the duck remained devoted to the rock, its love for it driving it to ever greater acts of depravity and horror. In the end, the duck was consumed by its own madness, a twisted, Lovecraftian creature that lurked in the shadows of the forest, driven mad by its love for a mossy rock. Revision number four. Once upon a dark and stormy night, a peculiar duck with no legs waddled through the dense and overgrown forest. Despite its strange appearance and disability, the duck possessed a fierce determination and a heart full of love. As the duck wandered through the forest, it happened upon a mossy rock that caught its eye. The duck was immediately smitten, and it began to coo and quack softly as it waddled closer to the rock. The rock, seemingly enchanted by the duck's love, began to pulsate and glow with an otherworldly light. The duck, mesmerized, nuzzled its beak against the rock, and the two became inseparable. But the union of duck and rock was not meant to last. For deep in the dark and twisted roots of the forest, a great and ancient evil stirred. The creature, a monstrous being known as the Great Old One, had long been sealed away by powerful spells and incantations. But the duck's love for the mossy rock had disturbed the ancient seals, and the creature began to awaken. As the Great Old One emerged from its slumber, it cast its monstrous gaze upon the duck and the rock, enraged by their love. The creature unleashed its wrath upon them, raining down bolts of eldritch energy and sending the forest into chaos. But the duck, determined to protect its beloved rock, used its cunning and quick wits to evade the great old one's attacks. It darted and dodged through the forest, leading the creature on a wild chase. Finally, the duck led the great old one to the edge of a steep cliff, where it had no choice but to plummet into the abyss below. With the evil vanquished, the duck and the rock were able to live out the rest of their days in peace and love. Revision number five. Once upon a time in a world beyond our own, 
There lived the duck who had no legs. Despite this seemingly insurmountable handicap, the duck was content and happy, spending her days swimming in the pond and basking in the sun. But one day, everything changed. As the duck was swimming, she caught sight of a mossy rock sitting on the bank of the pond. It was love at first sight. The duck was enwrapped by the rock's rugged, moss-covered surface, and she knew that she had to have it. She spent every waking moment gazing at the rock, dreaming of a day when she could possess it for her own. But alas, the duck had no legs, and she was unable to reach the rock. She grew despondent and began to waste away, pining for the unattainable object of her affection. One night, as the duck lay sleeping, she was visited by a dark and ancient being. The being offered to grant the duck her heart's desire, but at a terrible price. The duck accepted the offer, and the being transformed her into a creature of darkness and shadow. She now had legs, but they were twisted and malformed, and her once beautiful feathers had become matted and foul. But the duck did not care. She had her rock, and she spent her days basking in its mossy embrace. And though she had gained her heart's desire, she had lost her soul in the process. She was now a creature of the night, cursed to wander the earth for eternity, never again knowing the joy of the sun on her face or the cool embrace of the water. But she did not regret her decision, for she had her beloved mossy rock, and that was all that mattered. Revision number six. As the duck swam through the dark, murky waters of the pond, she felt a strange pull towards the shore. She paddled towards the bank, her heart racing with excitement and anticipation. There, sitting atop a small hill, was a moss-covered rock etched with ancient runic symbols. The duck was mesmerized by the rock, and she knew in that moment that she had to possess it. But as she approached the rock, she felt a dark presence emanating from its surface. She hesitated, fear and doubt creeping into her mind. Ignoring her instincts, the duck continued towards the rock, drawn in by its alluring beauty. She reached out to touch it, her heart pounding with anticipation. But as soon as her webbed feet touched the rock, she was consumed by a feeling of utter terror. The ancient, the ancient runic symbols of the rock's surface began to glow with an otherworldly light, and the duck was overcome by a sense of dread and despair. The rock had ensnared her, her. Trapping her in its eldritch embrace, she struggled to break free, but it was no use. The rock had claimed her as its own, and she was now bound to it for eternity. The duck was consumed by madness and terror, trapped in the grip of the moss-covered runic rock. She was doomed to spend eternity in the thrall of its malevolent power, her once happy life. Now, a never-ending nightmare. Revision number seven. In the depths of the dark and ancient forest, there lived a duck who had fallen in love with a mossy rock. The rock was covered in strange, runic symbols that glowed with an otherworldly light. The duck was entranced by the rock's eerie beauty, and she spent her days gazing at it from afar, longing to be near it. But the rock was guarded by a coven of dark and ancient witches who kept the duck at bay with their powerful spells. Despite the dangers, the duck was determined to be with her beloved rock. She spent months studying the arcane arts, learning the secrets of the witch's magic. Finally, the duck was ready. She summoned all of her newfound power and cast a spell of her own, banishing the witches from the forest and claiming the rock as her own. But the duck had not realized the true nature of the rock. As she touched it, she was consumed by a dark and ancient evil. The rock had been cursed by the witches, and now the curse had been passed on to the duck. The duck's body twisted and contorted, becoming a grotesque and twisted creature of the night. 
she was consumed by an insatiable hunger for human flesh, and she roamed the forest in search of her next victim. But even in death, the duck could not be separated from her beloved mossy rock. It was bound to her cursed form, glowing with an otherworldly light as she hunted her prey. And so the duck's tale of love and obsession ended in a nightmare of unspeakable horror, a cautionary tale of the dangers of desire. As the duck gazed upon the mossy rock, she felt a strange and powerful connection to it. She could not explain why, but she knew that she had to have the rock for her own. The duck spent every waking moment studying the rock, trying to decipher the strange and ancient symbols that covered its surface. She was convinced that the rock held the key to some great and terrible secret, and she was determined to uncover it. But as the duck delved deeper into the mysteries of the rock, she began to feel a strange and unsettling change within her. Her body was twisting and contorting, undergoing a grotesque and horrifying transformation. The duck's legs stretched and elongated, becoming twisted and misshapen. Her feathers fell out, leaving her skin bare and exposed. And as the transformation continued, the duck could feel herself losing her grip on reality, consumed by a madness born of obsession. Finally, the transformation was complete. The duck had become a monstrous and twisted creature, her once graceful form now a twisted and grotesque abomination. But the duck did not care. She had her beloved mossy rock, and nothing else mattered. She spent her days basking in its eerie glow, consumed by a dark and ancient evil. And though the duck's body had been destroyed, her obsession with the rock remained. She was now a creature of the night, cursed to roam the earth in search of victims to feed her never-ending hunger. But even in death, the duck's love for the rock burned eternal, a twisted and horrifying reminder of the dangers of obsession. And so ends the tales of the cursed duck. <laughs> Detective John Doe stared at the lifeless body laid out on the cold metal table before him. The victim was one of many that had been turning up in the back alleys of downtown New York, all deformed in strange and inexplicable ways. Doe had been on the case for weeks, but he still felt no closer to finding out who was behind these grotesque killings. As he examined the body, he couldn't shake the feeling of being watched. He turned to see if anyone was there, but the room was empty save for himself and the victim. Despite his best efforts, Doe couldn't find any clues at the scene of the crime. It was as if the killer had left no trace behind. Frustrated, Doe decided to call a night and headed back to his office. As he sat at his desk, staring blankly at the case file in front of him, a knock at the door interrupted his thoughts. He opened it to find one of his fellow detectives standing there. And we've got another one. The detective said grimly, and this one, even worse than the last. Doe's heart sank as he grabbed his coat and followed the detective out into the night. As they drove to the scene of the crime, Doe couldn't shake the feeling of foreboding that had settled over him. When they arrived, Doe was horrified by what he saw. The victim was even more twisted and deformed than the previous ones. It was clear that the killer was becoming more and more bold and reckless with each passing day. Determined to put a stop to these killings, Doe poured over the case files, looking for any clue, no matter how small, but still, nothing seemed to stand out. It was then that Doe remembered 
the strange feeling he had in the morgue, the feeling of being watched. Could it be that the killer was somehow watching him, taunting him with these grotesque murders? Determined to find out, Doe set up surveillance cameras around his office and waited. And sure enough, a few nights later, the killer appeared on his screen. But what Doe saw on the screen was not what he had expected. The killer was not human at all, but a twisted, Lovecraftian monster with tentacles writhing from its body. Shocked and horrified, Doe knew that he had to stop this creature before it could kill again. Doe quickly gathered his weapons and headed to the location where the creature was last seen. As he crept through the dark streets, he could hear the creature's grotesque laughing echoing off the buildings. He finally spotted the creature lurking in a dark alleyway, its tentacles writhing and squirming in the dim light. Doe raised his gun and took aim. But before he could fire, the creature lunged at him with incredible speed. Doe barely managed to dodge the creature's attack, but it was too late. He felt a sharp pain as one of the creature's tentacles pierced his skin, injecting him with a deadly toxin. As Doe lay on the ground, feeling the poison coursing through his veins, he realized that this was the end. But even as he took his last breath, he knew that he had done everything he could to stop this monstrous creature from wrecking havoc on the city. The creature, satisfied with its kill, slithered away into the darkness, leaving behind only the twisted and mangled bodies of its victims. And as the city fell silent, the people could only pray that this was the last they would see of this Lovecraftian nightmare. And as the city was engulfed in fear and chaos, rumors began to spread about the true nature of the creature. Some whispered that it was an ancient eldritch being from beyond the stars, drawn to earth by the madness and depravity of humanity. Others claimed that it was a creature of pure darkness summoned forth by dark magic and forbidden rituals. But whatever the truth may have been, one thing was certain. The creature was a force to be reckoned with. It struck fear into the hearts of all who crossed its path, and its mere presence was enough to send even the bravest of men running for cover. Despite the best efforts of the authorities, the creature continued to wreak havoc on the city. It seemed, it seemed to be able to move with impunity, striking whenever and wherever it pleased. But there were those who refused to be cowed by the monster. A group of brave souls led by Doe's fellow detectives, banded together to hunt down the creature and bring an end to its reign of terror. They tracked the creature through the dark streets and abandoned buildings of the city. Using their knowledge of its movements and habits to anticipate its next attack, and finally, after many long nights of pursuit, they were able to corner the creature in a crumbling warehouse on the outskirts of town. The battle that ensued was fierce and brutal. The creature fought with all the ferocity of a wild beast, lashing out with its tentacles and spewing noxious fumes from its mouth. But the detectives were determined to end the creature's reign of terror once and for all. In the end, it was a lone detective who delivered the final blow, plunging a silver knife into the creature's heart and bringing an end to its monstrous existence as the creature's body fell to the ground. The detectives breathed a sigh of relief. They had finally brought an end to the terror that had plagued the city for so long and avenged their partner's death. But even in victory, they could not shake the feeling of unease, for they knew that in a world filled with horrors beyond human comprehension, there would always be more monsters lurking in the shadows, waiting to strike. Despite the valiant efforts of the detectives, the creature continued to evade capture. They thought they had killed it, but they were wrong. It seemed to possess a supernatural ability as well, to sense danger and avoid detection after their initial fight. Those fellow detectives were at their wit's end. They had never faced a foe like this before, and they were starting to lose hope. But Doe, amazingly, had not died. He refused to give up. In essence, he willed his way through the poison coursing through his veins. 
and little did they know, he became a horror unto himself, but one with a human mind. He spent every waking moment from then on studying the case files, looking for any clue that could help them track down the creature, and finally, after weeks of tireless investigation, he stumbled upon a crucial piece of evidence. It was a journal, written by a madman who had claimed to have summoned the creature from the depths of the abyss. The journal detailed the summoning ritual and included detailed instructions on how to banish the creature back to his realm of darkness. Doe, well, the new Detective Doe, shared the information with his fellow detectives and together they formulated a plan to put an end to the creature's reign of terror once and for all. They gathered the necessary ingredients for the banishing ritual and set off into the night to confront the creature. It was a perilous journey, but they were determined to see it through to the end. At last, they reached the creature's lair. It was a dark and twisted place, filled with the stench of death and decay. The creature itself was waiting for them, its tentacles writhing with anticipation. But the detectives were not afraid. They began the banishing ritual, chanting the ancient words of power and casting the creature back into the abyss. The creature fought with all its might, unleashing its full fury upon the detectives, but they were resolute and they continued to recite the banishing spell. In the end, the creature's resistance was futile. It was consumed by the banishing ritual, and with a final ear-splitting shriek, it disappeared into the darkness from which it came. The detectives breathed a sigh of relief as the creature was vanquished. The city was safe once again, and the people could sleep soundly in their beds, knowing that their nightmare was finally over. But even as they celebrated their victory, the detectives knew that there would always be other dangers lurking in the shadows. For in a world filled with horrors beyond human comprehension, the fight against evil was never truly over. As the days passed, other creatures began to show and continued to evade capture. The people of the city began to lose hope. Some even whispered that the creatures were indestructible, beings of pure malevolence that could not be stopped. But Doe, even in dying, well, his humanity dying, he would not let the creature triumph. His spirit lingered on, watching over the city and guiding those who were still fighting to stop the monster. One night, a group of brave hunters armed with silver bullets and holy water finally managed to corner another group of the creatures. They fought bravely, but it was a fierce and bloody battle. In the end, they emerged victorious, the creatures vanquished at last. The people of the city rejoiced, and Doe's spirit finally found peace. But as before, even as the city celebrated, there was a feeling of unease, for deep in the darkness, other Lovecraftian horrors did lurk, waiting for their time to emerge and claim the world as their own. And so ends Detective John Doe. El Hotel Raconteurs There is a place, an intangible space, that's believed to be within the collective consciousness of humankind. This transitory mindscape has been dubbed El Hotel Raconteurs by those who discovered it. In this case study, we will examine the history of El Hotel Raconteurs, the alleged procedure used to reach it, its purpose, outcomes, reagents, and steps, and its place in the modern world. History In the early 1950s, a Quebecos think tank happened to stumble across a perfect storm of psychological experiments that resulted in the discovery of El Hotel Raconteur. In an effort to treat excessive trauma in those who had witnessed and or suffered the horrific events of World War II, Specifically, the Normandy Massacres, a strange sort of ritual, was born. Upon its first successful implementation, it was believed that a key of the psyche had been reached in one Jacques Tremblay, while being subjected to what are now considered unethical mental health experiments, Jacques retreated to a place deep in his mind, and appeared to be in a catatonic state. Upon returning to consciousness, Jacques reported being transported to a grand hotel. The lobby was intricate with paintings and futuristic light fixtures. The alabaster furnishings were described poignantly as 
simplistic yet unnerving. It was also mentioned that the lighting was improper, as though it glared at the observer from the finely polished pillars regardless of the angle they were approached from. According to Jackie's account, there was a grand divided staircase and several doors, accompanied by some meager furnishings, carpeting, chairs, tables, the most peculiar of which being paintings on the walls that were familiar yet unrecognisable. The more time he spent in this lobby, the more feeling of terror grew, as if he wasn't wanted there. Jackie proceeded through one of the doorways, in which he was met with a seemingly endless hallway of doors. They all appeared to contain memories or moments of his life in which he felt anxiety, fear, or anger. Upon choosing a door, Jackie claimed to have relived the moment that, while in captivity, the 12th SS Panzer Division began to murder Canadian prisoners of war. According to his account, he changed the moment by not speaking and keeping his head down, a distinct contrast to the behaviour he claimed to have previously exhibited during the event, in which he swore and screamed at a young German soldier who gouged out his left eye. Due to this alleged change to the memory, Jacquet claimed that his left eyeball was saved and remained intact. Following the experiment, Jacquet's behaviour and outlook on life appeared to have significantly improved. Shortly before the end of his life, in the year 1988, a drawing of Jacquet was found that resembled the description of El Hotel Raconteurs, given by all who witnessed it. The researchers tirelessly attempted to mimic the conditions that led to this alleged mindscape, ultimately resulting in the death of at least one veteran. Eventually, the researchers found the methods necessary to recreate the circumstances that led to the Hotel of Memories that Jacquet reached. The space itself was dubbed El Hotel Raconteurs, or the Storyteller's Hotel, by the researcher. The Procedure The necessary reagents for a participant to reach El Hotel Raconteur are as follows. At least one additional person, dubbed the facilitator, who is to subject the participant to the procedure's more difficult aspects and encourage the proper facilitation of the procedure's objectives. A comfortable, isolated environment to prevent foreign involvement or external stimuli. Relevant to the participant, emotion-evoking and trauma-inducing forms of stimulation. Powerful sedatives. Propofol appears to work effectively, but opium and laudanum have been used with varied results. An analog form of time management. Wristwatch, pocket watch, etc. Items that run on batteries may work, but are discouraged. Winding mechanisms are strongly advised. Any kind of strong adhesive tape, rope, heavy fabric, or binding that may be used to restrain an individual. Primarily, the ritual requires that the participant, henceforth referred to as observer, be the victim of some kind of traumatic experience. The significance and impact of the trauma appears to differ, but must be considered a burden of substantial weight to the observer. The steps. The observer must be in the aforementioned semi-hermetic environment, so as to maintain the integrity of the procedure. The time management device must be fully wound, or if electronic, fully charged on fresh batteries, and fastened to the observer's hand with restraints. If the observer has no hands, it must be fastened to a part of the body they would use to facilitate basic daily chores including, but not exclusive to, the mouth. Optional, using restraints ensure the observer cannot flee or avoid the triggers being used. The observer's consent and willingness are helpful but not necessary. Expose the observer to relevant trauma until they appear to become numb or reach an unresponsive stupor. This step appears to have the highest risk of failure and has had poor long-term results in those who do not reach a state of catatonia. At this point, remove the time management device from the observer's hand. The device must be inspected to see if it's still operational. The actual accuracy of the device doesn't appear to matter. If the device is intact and working, proceed to step 6. If the device is damaged, broken, or fails to continue its designated purpose, abort the procedure immediately and attempt to revive the individual. Administer the sedatives or anesthetics. If all of the steps are appropriately followed, the observer may find themselves in El Hotel Raconteur. Once there, they may seek out a moment of their life in which they have suffered a traumatic event or an event that led to a traumatic event, and potentially change the outcome. The results are unquantifiable, as it appears that reality will mould to the changes made by the individual, 
Some debate exists over whether people relive false memories, meaning there is no true impact to the ritual, aside from potential treatment for trauma, which is massively overshadowed by the risk involved. In select cases, other individuals who may not have been affected by their altered memory, directly or otherwise, have reported strange feelings of nostalgia, deja vu, or vague premonitions regarding the events of the memory in question. The hotel itself appears to have some level of will, sentient, and control that it exerts over itself and the observer, or observers. It will try to encourage the observer to face the particular trauma that's used as the foundation of the ritual. The hotel is also known to make the observer considerably more uncomfortable the longer they spend inside of it. It's theorized that if a decision is not made in a prompt amount of time, three hours within the hotel, the real time appears to vary greatly, an individual may not wake up and remain in a catatonic stupor indefinitely. Modern Trials and Evidence A well-worn document made its way across the internet in which recent trials were attempted, but the core document itself has either faded into obscurity, been removed, or vanished altogether. Until this report, no consistent compilation of the details has been released as a whole, or shared with the public. The document in question details the events of a psychologist and self-described ritologist named Raphael Levant, attempting the ritual four times with a small group of largely uninformed volunteers, of whom half were hand-picked to be observers and the other half facilitators. His experiments themselves were dual in purpose to explore and confirm the validity of the ritual, and to test the boundaries of human capabilities when pushed to commit potentially dangerous actions against other human beings under the direction of a superior authority. Raphael's proposed experiments are the closest concrete evidence we have to the ritual's legitimacy, barring the early tests from the aforementioned think tank. Only fragments and vague details from a single source were ever found, highlighting the dubious nature of the procedure and El Hotel Raconteurs itself. The following document is the result of thousands of hours of concerted efforts to a. Screen the validity of the relevant information b. Ensure linguistic background checks for consistency c. Research all individuals involved and their roles d. Selectively omit irrelevant or sensitive data that may put people or organizations at risk and f. Compile the appropriately vetted data for public release and consumption. The document reads as follows. There is no cure. No cure for madness, sadness, trauma, or harm. The only balm is time, and he who masters time, masters the world. I was molested as a child by a family friend. I wish I could say it was only me, but my poor sister suffered too. It's hard to say which one of us handled it worse in the long run, considering she killed herself at 13. It's a terrible thing to happen to anyone. It weighs on you. It weighs on me still. Though I expect everyone handles their pain differently. My pain was handled by my family poorly, my therapist admirably, and narcotics sublimely. Once I believed I'd reached rock bottom, living a terrible life that I convinced myself I had no power over, I was invited to take part in a study. The study itself offered anywhere between three to five thousand dollars compensation, depending on the length and result of the study. For the first time I could remember, I felt empowered, capable of making a change, naive as it was. I felt obligated to myself to make a change, take a step towards healing. I didn't know the intention of the study until I'd agreed, but I suppose if I knew, I'd have accepted without hesitation. Had I known where I would ultimately end up, I'd be in the same place I am now, running from my life. When I first met Dr. Levant, he gave me and the rest of the study group seemingly random and confusing tests. As the tests went on and the questions grew more disturbing and obscure, the group shrank significantly. Whether due to discomfort or failing the tests, what was something around 30 people dwindled to only 5. We then proceeded to what he referred to as the ritual stage. Everyone who had succeeded, or perhaps simply persevered, was subject to gratuitous torment. An elderly Middle Eastern woman named Savi was subjected to gruesome war footage, she was the lone survivor of a drone strike on her village, was forced to watch staged violent gang rapes. You can probably guess what her trauma was. Every one of them was forced to witness gruesome acts that were somehow relevant to horrible things they'd endured. I know this because Dr. Levant made me watch. 
just like I was forced to watch what happened to my poor little sister by that fiend so many years ago. I only found out afterwards that Dr. Levant's experiments were mostly radical successes. Aside from a middle-aged man named Henry who never entered the hotel, everyone else not only lived, they healed. Unfortunately, in Henry's case, he took the life of one of the experiment's facilitators, then his own. By the time I learned about the successes, it was too late. I was bound to complete the experiment. Somehow, my trial, my rituals superseded theirs. Not only did I commit the gravest of sins, but I robbed four people of recovery, of the ability to heal and move on. Whether selfishness, passion, or ignorance fueled my motivations in the end, I truly couldn't say. When my turn came to sit in that chair, I found a second person fastened behind me. I didn't know who or why until I found myself in that sterile hellscape of a hotel. In contrast to what others had told me to expect, I wasn't alone in that lobby. Weeping like a child was Dr. Levant himself. The insides of the building were not what they were supposed to be. He told me. The walls were empty, void of windows. There were no lights, no paintings, no furniture. He knew something was wrong. Dr. Levant was filled with dread and was clearly apprehensive about approaching any door. Luckily for us, he told me, some of our memories had to have retained their individuality. It turned out that the doctor had some skeletons in his own closet. I knew because I rattled the bones and was shaken to my very core. The first door was a horrific mash of my first day of third grade, in which I wet myself and my teacher spanked me in front of the class and something else. Something I didn't recognize. It was clear that Levant did, as he slammed the door faster than I could assess the environment. The good doctor began to run down the halls, as if he was derangingly scouring for a particular memory that he knew wouldn't be there. I was abandoned. Left to wade through the mess he left me in. After what my watch told me was an hour, the hotel began to resist. Doors flung open as I walked by, and gusty winds blew from the portals, as if desperately trying to suck me into a memory. From what I saw, each memory was more warped and terrible than the last. Having lost Dr. Levant, I was forced to make my way through the distorted and melded scenes of chaotic trauma. My fear grew, as I was unable to commit myself to any entrance. Slowly, my options dwindled bit by bit. The horrors I faced in my life all pale in comparison to mere glimpses of the twisted hotel's corridors, occupied only by pain and anguish. The hotel's toll began to sink in. Constant forlorn and piercing howls echoed the halls. The memories of Dr. Levant began to become my own. I felt them, knew them. My sense of self began to slip away, and reality became true horror. How long was I there? Was Dr. Levant still inside too? Am I actually him? And have I been all along? That was when my maddened musings were abruptly halted. A memory, one I knew was not mine at all, appeared at the end of the hallway. I felt Dr. Levant's exact emotions from that moment. The terror, the agony. I spectated for a few minutes, bearing witness to what first looked like a group of children playing innocently. Upon further realization, it was Dr. Levant as a small child no older than six, being gruesomely tortured by some other children. The streets and buildings looked old and many people passed by, ignoring his cries, as they burned his flesh and mutilated his genitals. They howled and screamed in some foreign language that I couldn't recognize. Finally, I overcame my hesitance and stepped through the doorway. I just wanted out, you see. I wanted out of the hotel, out of the experiment, I wanted it all gone, and for no one to experience the mind-breaking meta-reality that this transient space had borne. As I stepped through the portal, the hotel's fading walls and cacophonous wails finally released me. The children ceased the torment and looked at me. At first, they seemed uncertain, perplexed. They yelled to me in their unrecognizable tongue. I didn't know their words, but I knew what they were saying. They wanted me to fuck off. First, I grabbed the biggest child by the neck and began to ram my fist into his face over and over. Once I started, I couldn't stop. They began to scream, and some tried to flee. I grabbed the young girl's golden curls and pulled her back, kicking in a kneecap. 
She screamed and she crumpled to the ground like a slinky. At this point, passerbys began to finally take notice as the other children fled. People were shouting behind me, but I knew I had to end this memory, end the trauma. It was my only way back to reality. Right? I stepped forward to the whimpering and terrified child, the boy who would have been a doctor, who would have if I hadn't stomped on his small and fragile throat, ending his lifelong struggle before it could ever take root. When I woke, I found myself in a dark complex, hardly recognizable from the lab that hosted the malign experiments. Since that time, that stay in that terrible place, I've been a man unhinged, hiding from the truths that mankind should never pursue. I only pray that my words serve as a testament to what life and pain should and shouldn't be. It is important to note that, much like all the other details pertaining to the hotel, nothing in this document can appropriately be corroborated. As such, there's no evidence that a Dr. Raphael Levant ever existed or worked in the Western world. In closing, a cure for the ails of a tortured spirit would be a holy grail, a universally sought panacea. If it were true, but even so, would such a price be worth paying? That remains to be seen. Footnotes The Observer claimed to have been overcome by discomfort and uneasiness, as though the place itself was alive and did not want him there. It encouraged any and all attempts to leave, and appeared to distort, make disquieting noises, and cause hallucinations along longer one stayed. The latter most appeared to become distinctly terrifying. The moments witnessed by a memory was ultimately chosen, a scene of significant abuse at the hand of his father being scolded by his aunt for having wet the bed of the child and being ridiculed in school. There is no existing record or evidence of Jacques having lost an eye or suffering any significant mutilation during the Normandy massacre. Further details include due to excessive overdose of sedatives. Laudanum has only successfully been used in one known case. The use of digital watches has proven unreliable in at least three cases. Subjects who have undergone the excessive traumatic exposure but not reached a state of catatonia have an increased risk of developing mental health disorders and attempting suicide by 150 and 600% respectively, compared to the North American average. In several cases, individuals have failed to regain consciousness or awareness of their situation. They end up trapped in a permanent vegetative state until their ultimate demise. Individuals have reported that as the time management device that they find themselves with, inside the hotel, proceeds towards the three-hour mark, doors begin to gradually disappear, leaving not but blank yellow walls behind. And lastly, the final footnote is similar to the 1961 Milgram experiment. And so concludes El Hotel Raconteurs. Well, I hope you enjoyed those tales. AI, right, is just becoming amazing, mates, don't you think? I'm at this point where I cannot think that there isn't something that AI can't do. Admittedly, there are limitations, but those limitations are just being broken almost on a monthly basis. And today's stories are testaments to that smashing of barriers imposed on AI. Mate, I hope you enjoyed these originals and unique stories, and thank you so much for joining me this year. I've been running this podcast for over 10 years, and I've enjoyed every single part of this show, and more importantly, the people that I've met in doing this show makes it all worth it. I wouldn't trade this experience for anything offered my way. I love doing this podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed or loved the episodes as well. I want to let you all know that I'll be returning on January the 9th, so I'm taking a big break to revitalize my batteries. So I'll kickstart the podcast machine all over again then. If I get a chance to start earlier, you know me by now, I definitely will. I also want to thank you very special people that support me this entire time my Patreon supporters. A very, very special thank you to Matto Star, whose undying support has really helped this podcast not only grow, but also invest in software, tools, and key assets that let me produce the most amazing artwork, repairs of old-time radio that I feel most uploads in this space for OTRs simply cannot compete with, and added so much more music and polish to each episode. Thank you immensely for your support, but also importantly, your friendship. I can't wait to reply to your email, which won't be via my voice this time around, unfortunately, as I'll be nowhere near my computer during that time. But after January, I promise you, mate, I'll be back on the mic 
just chatting to you. And I'll be putting time aside as well on my break just to respond to your lovely self, rest assured. Thank you, man, and here's to another year. And to my epic Lesser Bower, if I could define Stalwart best, it would be with your support as well. Unshakable, committed, unwavering. Thank you immensely for your support this year, Lesser. I really, really appreciate your committed Patreon support, and likewise, like Mario Star, your friendship. You've totally shaped the way this podcast runs as well, specifically covering overhead costs, adding more plugins and tools, and also being such a breath of fresh air when I read your emails. Thank you, mate, for being a legend. Yes. Likewise, here's to another year, mate. And my amazing Elgrey supporters who, for some, I've been lucky enough to have for years on this podcast. These silent unicorns of this show support, I tell you what, thank you for being such top-tier human beings. I'm lucky to have Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaele, Michelangelo Yacone, divided by zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer, and for you lovelies out there that are supporting the show, don't forget you can swing on by my Patreon and vote for artificial intelligence created artwork. It is a hoot, it's a lot of fun, and it's so wacky. And you'll have access to me creating those pieces just for you. So be sure to exercise your awesome right to do so. Thank you again, you very, very special people. If you ever want to be a patron yourself, you can visit me on www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. And at any tier of support, you can put your vote in for what artwork you'd like to see. So today, it'll be ducks with crazy tentacles and weird feather blotches on their bodies and a giant mossy rock perhaps eating a duck. You never know. <laughs> Either way, it's going to be a riot. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And I'll be catching you amazing people in January 2023. Love ya all. Catch ya mates. <laughs> <laughs>